I'm Josephine Reed, and this is the download from Audiophile Magazine. Listening to a story forces you to think about phrasing, and boy, it you separate out people who can write prose from people who can't pretty quickly. When the book is good, you lose yourself in sitting there reading it out loud because you're enjoying reading it, and that, that's the way I felt when I read Aloft is, uh, you know, I'm slowly I'm on the airplane and I hate I hate heights, and then I'm slowly I want to know what's going to happen. So it's fun. It's very fun to read. That's author Joe Hill and actor Dennis Butzikaris talking about audiobooks. We're continuing our series of conversations between authors and audiobook narrators. It's the brainchild of audiophile editor Robin Witten, who saw that the two people central to producing an audiobook seldom had the chance to speak with one another. And boy, we found out actors and authors have a lot to talk about. This time out, we're speaking with Joe Hill and Dennis Butzikaris. Dennis narrated the novella Aloft in Joe's recently published book, Strange Weather. Here's a short intro to them both. Dennis Butzikaris is an award-winning theater, film, television, and voice actor. He's recorded over 120 audiobooks, has won eight Audi Awards, and received over a dozen Golden Earphone Awards from Audiophile Magazine. Joe Hill writes dark fantasy and stories of dread in all genres, from short stories to novels to his most recent book, Strange Weather, which consists of four distinct novellas. The son of author Stephen and Tabitha King, Joe Hill grew up in a house dominated by books in all their forms. Both my parents are, are writers, but they're really readers first. And you know, my, my dad reads 80 books a year. My mom reads 100. They're always reading. They read at the dinner table. They read after dinner. They read first thing in the morning. And my dad reads in the car. He reads in the car by listening to audio. He always finds an excuse to get in the car for at least a half an hour every day so he can get another chapter read. I'm definitely someone who now I probably listen to 14 audiobooks a year, and the numbers keep going up because I love rock and roll. I, I love music, but put on the dad rock station on, you know, XM radio or something, and I'll hear a couple tracks. I'll hear the Stones. I'll hear Zeppelin. I'll be like, well, that's enough of that. Time for the book. Dennis, how did you come to audiobooks? They came to me. I, I was doing a play called Sight Unseen off-Broadway where I was playing a Jewish artist. And um, Simon & Schuster was doing a book called Before and After by uh, Rosellen Brown. And the book had three different narratives in it. And one of the narrative was a Jewish artist. And the other, the other part of the book was read by Kate Nelligan. And I had never done it before, so they schlepped me into a studio and I said, I have no idea what I'm doing, which, by the way, I say that every time I go into a studio, I have no idea what I'm doing. And this was when it was still books on tape, and it was a, a clumsy little booth that they had stuck in some dark floor on Simon & Schuster. And the producer said to me, just pay attention to what you're reading, and then we'll pay attention to you, which I thought was, you know, scary at the time because I have to pay attention, which is <laughs> always a difficult thing anyway. And so, yeah, so that's how I did it, and I kind of fell into it, and I've never pursued it, but it's always sort of come to me. Were you a listener? No. To audiobooks? Uh, no, I take that back. My children, you know, I listen. We listen to a lot of like children type books. Like I'm thinking Julie Christie reading, you know, those kinds of early books on tapes of, of reading children's stories. And I think I listen to a lot of plays on tape. Like there's early tapes of Death of a Salesman with Dustin Hoffman playing Bernard. So there was there was that. But 
I did a play with Alexander Scorby, who maybe you don't remember, but he was like, he was one of the first guys who you'd see all the time. He read the Bible mm. in the 50s. There was a record of him recording the Bible, you know, that kind of thing. So, And he gave me a book that he was reading, one of the Renault books, the Mary Renault books. And, he, and I looked at it, and every sentence was, there was an underline, there was a circle, there was an arrow about how he was going to inflect or deflect or whatever, whatever he would do, which, of course, you can't do now because you can't do it on an iPad. But, ah. So to a degree, when you read, are you directing yourself? Is it almost like a one-man stage play and you have to direct as well? About 99% of it is, is you. I think the job a lot of times of a producer, if you get to have one these days, I mean, if, if the truth be told, I mean, they've, it's been cut out a little bit. Uh, but when you have a producer slash director at the other side of the window... They're pretty much worried about you pronunciate, pronunciating words. Pronunciate. There you go. Or being an idiot. They're worried about you being an idiot. <laughs> and the stomach growl. The stomach growling or, you know, not reading actually what's on the page. I don't know if you've had this experience of reading to a child and then you sort of fall asleep while you're reading and then they give you a, an elbow and say, Dad. You know, well, I mean, that, that can happen sort of figuratively when you're reading a an audiobook. You, you think the sentence is going somewhere and you kind of say the word that, and two months later when they're editing it and they call you in and say, you know, you didn't say that sentence right. You need to redo it. So. Right. The emphasis falls in the wrong place. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a different thing. That, that you can get into directorial arguments about that. Or, or I, I don't know if you have this too, but when I listen to audiobooks, I get very infuriated sometimes listening to the way that a person decided that the I in that sentence was was emphasized as opposed to the verb. In oh, sense, absolutely. You know? And you go, well, it, that's not what the author, you can hear, and then I lose the story for a few minutes thinking, well, why didn't somebody catch that? I wrote a short story for a Ray Bradbury collection, a collection honoring the work of Ray Bradbury. I wrote a story called By the Silver Waters of Lake Champlain, which is about two little kids who go out for a walk along Lake Champlain and they come across the corpse of a lake monster, a pleosaurus that has a plesiosaur, which is washed up on the beach. And is that a real dinosaur? Yeah, it is, and supposedly that's the one that's in Lake Champlain and, oh, and okay. the one that's in Loch Ness. I, you know, actually it was going to be about Loch Ness, but I wasn't confident I could write Scotland, and I knew I could write Lake Champlain. So this was in a, a collection. There were a lot of writers, and there was an audio book created for it, and every short story had a different reader. And completely by chance, that story was paired up with Kate Mulgrew. And I listened to her reading of it and was completely galvanized you know, completely electrified, because it seemed to me that she managed to find the emotional subtleties of every sentence, that no sentence, no phrase went by casually. She noticed the writing. She was attentive, and she responded to it verbally. It was just very exciting. I felt like, I felt like someone was reading the story who got it, who understood what I was, what I was doing and made sure the listener understood it, and sentence after sentence made me better than I actually was. So the next time I had a novel, it was called NOS 4A2, which when you, it's a vanity license plate, but when you sound it out, it's Nosferatu. It has a, a female lead, and I, I got Kate to read it because I knew she'd do a great job, and she did. She read the next book, which had another female lead, and in many ways, I feel sort of like Kate is my female voice, you know, and when I write from a female perspective, I'm often imagining how Kate might read it. Interesting. I was going to ask you that if you if you thought about how it sounds. And I often think of audiobook narrators who you have to find a way to make what's on that page work mm. orally. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes when you read a book out loud, you realize that the author didn't. 
and for obvious things, like using the same big word they looked up in paragraph one, that three paragraphs later they use the same big word, the same word that will send a reader or a listener to the dictionary or a reader to the dictionary. When you go, well, you know, you just, that's weird that you did. And it was for no good literary reason that you repeated that, you know. And also, uh, I did um, a couple of Philip Roth books, another Jewish voice. His sentences go for two or three pages, but they flow off your tongue. There's no clumsiness in them. He clearly, he clearly reads his sentences out loud or his entire book out loud as he works on it because it's a joy to have it come out of your mouth. Whereas there's, you know, I've dealt with other writers, uh, other writers' books that you go, you, clearly this is so clumsy and it's mm. clumpy and I, I just want to kind of crawl in a hole and die here. So Yeah, and making that work. What, did, what tools did you have to burnish when you began to narrate audiobooks, and it was just your voice and not your presence that was telling a story. I mean, I, it's much more nuts and bolts about trying to, to figure out, is it the first person or third person? Is the first person uh, a person who has an attitude, or is this a person that is surprised at the situation, or is, the, is he coming to it for the first time? Is, is he telling me a story in the first person, or is, is he experiencing it right now? I think in a loft, he's experiencing it right now. Was he experiencing yes. it or was he telling us? Was it, I think maybe well, he was telling it's, us. No, he, it's, no, it's a third-person story, but you're very, but it's 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 tightly wired to his consciousness. Yes, yes, yeah. You feel and that's a specific thing too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's single. It's not um, an omniscient narration. It's just it's always in his head. You never know anything more than what he knows. And we're talking about a loft that you, Dennis, narrated. Yes. Which is one of the novellas in Joe's recently published book, Strange Weather. Right. So the new book is called is called Strange Weather. It's a collection of four short novels. The first one is called Snapshot, which is about uh, a 13-year-old kid in the 80s who runs afoul of a man called known as the Phoenician who has a camera that can steal memories. And that one was read by Will Wheaton. And there were a whole bunch of reasons I wanted I wanted Will to read it. There are a lot of resonances there. The second story is called Loaded, and Loaded is about uh, America's new favorite weekly national pastime, which is the mass shooting. And, and that Stephen one, Lang reads that. Stephen yeah. Lang reads that, and he has just he can just bring so much menace to bear. Uh-huh. You know, he's really just he's got all of that by just saying hello. Just by <laughs> saying hello, you're frightened. You're frightened. Dennis read Aloft, which is the story of a guy who goes on a skydiving jump to impress a girl and winds up a castaway, a Robinson Crusoe, stranded on a semi-solid cloud 10,000 feet above the earth. And then Kate Mulgrew read the final story, Rain, which is a climate change story. It's about what would happen if the climate changed so that thunderclouds rain nails instead of water. And for me, it's the most fun I've ever had thinking about an audio book because I got to pick all the readers. And we, we got this incredible mm. cast of readers to be different voices. You, you had an opportunity to match the voice to the material. And I think that that's exciting for listeners. With Aloft, within the first, I don't know, couple of minutes, we're in uh, the compartment of a small plane mm-hmm. with seven characters. And... You have to give voice to all of them yeah. and keep them distinct. Yeah, how'd I do? <laughs> you did very well. I, you know, I'm, I'm... I was so impressed. <laughs> oh, well. It's the, think, it's the Harold Hill think system. You know, you just think you could do it, and then somehow you can do it. Audrey, Audrey, breathe, Ack said. 
No one is running a game on you. There is a problem with the aircraft. He spoke very slowly and enunciated each word with care. We would never shut a plane off to scare you into jumping. Honestly, a lot of people back out last minute. I don't care. I get paid the same either way. Why would the plane just stop working? I don't know, but believe me, we don't want to be in it when he tries to pop the engine. Why not? Because he's going to point it at the ground. Ron Morris scooted to the edge of the open door, preparing to follow his brother. He sat for a moment, feet on the bar that ran along the outside of the plane, elbows resting on his knees, enjoying the view. The blast of the wind made his skin ripple, distorted the loose flesh of his chubby face. Gradually, almost like a man nodding off, he tipped forward, then dropped head first, and was gone. Hurry up back there, shouted Lenny from the single seat at the controls. Harriet had been sitting between her jumpmaster's legs, looking from Aubrey to Axe to the pilot with a fearful fascination. She squeezed the junicorn to her chest, as if worried someone might be about to try to snatch it away from her. The junicorn was a stand-in for June herself, and Harriet was under orders to look after it and take it with her while she did all the things June was never going to get to do. See pyramids, surf in Africa, skydive. Aubrey had the ridiculous sense of being stared at by girl and stuffed animal alike. Aubrey, Harriet said, I think we ought to go, right now, both of us. She looked past Aubrey to Axe. Can we go together, like hold hands? Axe shook his head. We'll be three seconds behind you. By the way, we should also thank the producer, director, Katie Ostrowska. I mean, she did a great job. You do a woman's voice. I don't even know how you do a woman's voice. You, you don't even raise the pitch of your own voice, but somehow I know I'm listening to a woman. Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm not a fan. Of, when I listen to audiobooks and people are over-characterizing their vo- the voices, mm. I'm not a big fan of that. I mean, some people are great at it. Yeah. There are actors who can do accents off the top of, you know, just can do it. I'm not one of those guys. As a matter of fact, I've turned down books that have French accents or stuff like that. I'm just not good at it. I used to work with a guy when I had to do Russian accents a little bit. But I've sort of pulled back on all that so that now if there's anything like that, I, I don't do it. But women... I just try to have a lighter touch to my voice. I go, I go for my yang part of my yin yang. You, you know? definitely mm. do. If that's the female part. Is the female part the yang? Or... But uh, you know, I think it's the yin. Well, see, that's what I, that's yin. the mistake yeah. I've been making all these years. Joe, do you have to think about pacing differently depending on whether you're writing a novel or a short story or a novella? I think that's. I think the challenge of pacing is the same no matter what length you're working at, which is it has to keep moving or the reader will find something else to do. Dennis, what about pacing for the kind of work that Joe does? Dark fantasy or horror? It has to be paced in a when particular I was listening, way. I was listening to Will Wheaton on the way here today, and I found, he was so good at ch- changing the pace for each scene that he was reading. When the the boy was discovering things in your story, he was very slow and kind of trying to figure it out. When he was upset about something, he was he had more pace on the ball. I thought it was terrific, and it's clearly it's not something you could teach anybody, mm. or, or nor can you direct it. You know, you can. I've been told sometimes to slow down because I could rattle stuff off pretty quick. But that idea of sort of making you know 
making throwing a curveball and then a spitball and then a slider. You know, he's really he was very good at it, and I don't think that's anything you can teach. I was just going to say one other thing about pace, and that is the way the writer writes. If you have a sentence that's three words long, or if you have a sentence that goes for two pages, those are two different ways of mm. of talking, and they and that's the cue to the reader to tell you how to read it. Do you know? And I think the other cue is chapter breaks and the way you use them in your novella, especially you know, a lot. Sometimes when you're doing an audiobook and you come to the end and you haven't realized you're at the end, you're like, you're, you're, <laughs> I mean, there's another thing where you've read a sentence like, come into the room. She whispered, oh, let me do that again. <laughs> come into the room. All right. So, but there's the other thing where you come to the end and you haven't realized and you turn the page, oh, we're at the end of the chapter. Let me do that last sentence again with my end of chapter, chapter. voice. I was going to guess. You know? <laughs> But we learn these things as small children. I mean, even as even as you know, as small children being read a story by your parents, you learn there is an end of the story voice. There is an end of the chapter voice. You just find those intonations and I don't know, they're cultural. They're cultural cues or something. Novellas are such an interesting genre in and of themselves that I don't think we see enough of because with short stories, for me, I often feel as though I don't get to know the people well enough. Right. And a novella really allows you to do that, but with brevity. I think that people love a story that they can finish in almost a single sitting or, or finish in a weekend. And that way, it's almost like, you know, your brain is a container with only so much space in it. And when you can condense that story into, you know, a couple hours of listening. Did you know they were going to be short novellas? I started writing the first one four years ago, and that was Snapshot. And I did it uh, while I was on tour for Nosferatu, the third novel. And I was sick of myself because I kept looking at my telephone, you know, like everyone does. And I didn't want to be that person who was, I just didn't want to look at the damn thing. And I thought I need to give my eyes something else to do. So I bought a notebook. I didn't have a computer. I bought a notebook and a pen and I started writing what I thought would be a short story. And I finished the story and I knew it was too long to be a short story and too short to be a novel but that I liked what it was, and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And I wrapped it up in rubber bands, and I put it on the shelf and forgot all about it for about 18 months. And then I wrote another story at about that length, which was a loft. And after I finished that, I thought, maybe I'm working on a collection. And I do think that stories of dread, stories of menace, really can be very satisfying when they live at that length, 70 to about 180 pages. You know, you think about stories like Turn of the Screw. You think about something like Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman, mm. where it's 180 pages and there's not a wasted word in it. It's not one sentence longer than it needs to be. And it's funny that you say dread because I, I thought a loft was so uh, comforting. And, and not the main character was in a, a, a desperate situation, but a very comforting situation, I found it to be. I, I know that there was other things, other problems. But the fact that I could think that I need a chair to sit in and then there was the chair. It's just a wonderful. It was, it was a wonderful thing to read and to hear. He's in a palace of phantoms and dreams. That is sort of wonderful. I I think the story is very whimsical. But I've heard yeah. from a lot of people who are scared of heights that that the oh. it's the most dreadful, it's the most wrenching story in the book. So well, you wouldn't get in the plane. I mean, you know, let's let's. Start yeah, there. yeah. How long did it take you to record it? Did you finish I think it? In it a took day? two days. Two days. How long can you read before your voice yeah, is shot? I, um, these days, I have to drink tea every half hour or so. I mean, um, but I, I could do a six-hour, seven-hour day. Just reading, you know, after about three hours, you see your cheeks sort of in front of your eyeballs, <laughs> and you, you're worried that you're not actually saying what's on the page. Mm -hmm. You're maybe saying what you're thinking, which is, what is this for lunch? 
oh my God, what did I just read? Why does that person hate me behind the glass? You know, I mean, there's like, there's all the <laughs> shit that you think about, you know, in your head and you just, uh, you're worried that at the end of the day, you're just, you know, stupidly tired. Yeah. You're just knackered. When you're writing, you hear Kate, but do you hear right. other, do you hear your narrator? Are you listening? Dennis said you can tell when something hasn't been read aloud and, you know, when a writer hasn't bothered to read his own sentences aloud and see how they play. And that is a great test of a manuscript. Everything should be read aloud. Everything should be tested by hearing it. There's a point I want to touch on because I want to, there's an ongoing debate about whether listening to an audiobook counts as reading. There are some people who feel guilty about their audiobook habit because they feel like they didn't actually read the book. There have even been some some very prominent intellectuals. You know, Harold Bloom said, I believe, that audiobooks didn't count as reading. Harold Bloom says a lot. Yeah, well, my, my friend <clears throat> Neil Gaiman said that would have been a surprise to Milton, um, who was blind and had everything read to him by his daughters. So according to Harold Bloom, Milton never once had the experience of literature, which I think clearly he did. So, of course audiobooks count as reading. So I'm off topic. To go back, I, I read aloud. I think about voice a little bit. I think when I'm, a lot of times when I'm writing with a female lead, I will sometimes be hearing Kate's voice in my mind because she's so much fun. But I think most of the time it's just my voice, you know? Sometimes I get asked why I don't read my own stuff. And, and the answer is because when you have an opportunity to work with someone like Dennis or someone like Will or Kate Mulgrew, where their voice is their livelihood and they know how to use that instrument with care and nuance, why would we want to settle for second best, which would be my voice? Please. Have you ever heard Ian McEwen read his books? Is he good? I bet he's good. He's extraordinary. I haven't. I, he, well, he wrote Atonement, of yeah. course, but he wrote this short story, uh, short novella on Chisel Beach. Well, I thought that was one of the best things I'd heard in a long time. And I know you, you were the narrator for Neil Gaiman's American Gods, but Neil narrated the Graveyard Book. Mm -hmm. And he oh, he's was. He's a great reader. Yeah. Oh my God, he was fabulous. Yeah. When a great reader takes a good book, they can make a, a great book. And when you have a great book, and a great reader, it can go to a you know a level where you you feel like you've had this very profound experience and had one of the great you know one of the great books of your life. Absolutely right. And on the other hand, any flaws that book might have, boy, can you hear it when you listen to an audiobook? Tremendously right. magnified. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I think sometimes people in publishing tend to overrate the importance of beautiful prose. Um, that the things that that people in publishing love is not the thing most readers love. Wait, I, what do you mean? I, I'm going to tell oh, you. Okay, I, I care intensely about the quality of my sentences. I want there to be some music, some zip for the sentences to dance a little bit. But I also think a lot of readers are totally indifferent to the sound of sentences until they're listening on audio. But I think a lot of times when you're looking at a book, if you're plunging along into the story, that will play okay as long as you're not really thinking about what you're reading. But listening to a story forces you to think about phrasing. And boy, it, you separate out people who can write prose from people who can't pretty quickly. And frankly, when the book is good, you lose yourself in sitting there reading it out loud because you're enjoying reading it. And that, that's the way I felt when I read Aloft is, uh, you know, I'm slowly, I'm on the airplane and I hate, I hate heights. And then I'm slowly, I want to know what's going to happen. So it's, fun, it's very fun to read. Dennis, I know I mentioned you narrated the multicast American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Is that the first multicast book that you've narrated? 
No, I'd done a couple of them. I've done multicast where I was actually in the room with the other actors, and then this American Gods where we were all there at disparate times. Hmm. Um, Is that more challenging? Easier when you're all in the room together, right? Uh, well, e each of them have their downfalls. I mean, being in the room with other people, you have to not make noise while the other person's talking, or, you know, there's, there's, which is a complicated thing, really. I mean, that sounds silly, but that's part of the problem. Also, you tend to feel a little shyer when you're around other people, mm. you know? So there's that. It, with just doing it by yourself, that I found that to be difficult um, because uh, my sentences were, and then she said, he said, and he looked at her and said, you know, and then, th of course, I'd have long paragraphs of other of, uh, narrative. But That is hard. It was hard. And um, also because sometimes I'd have to capture the tone of, of what they were, you know, if it was hurried or if it was, uh, you know, if it was frightened or if, you know, whatever was going on in the scene. I had to capture that in the narration, and sometimes I wouldn't know because simply I would have in front of me, you know, my lines, but not <laughs> what came this the the meat in the sandwich that I was making. So that was a little difficult. Sometimes we'd have to stop, and I have to find. I said, "What the hell is going on here?" So you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. So there was that. I mean, I'd read the book, but once you get in the studio, it's a whole other animal. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. It was great. You were wonderful to have us. Uh, yeah, no, it was, it was my fun. pleasure. Thank you, thank Joe. You. Thank you, Dennis. That's actor Dennis Butzikaris and author Joe Hill. Dennis narrated the novella Aloft, which appears in Joe's latest book, Strange Weather. You can find out more about Strange Weather and hundreds of other audiobooks at audiophilemagazine.com. For the download, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.